0: That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. People
2: of Calling to city. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to transmissions. I'm waiting to be.
3: This is the Starship Sofa, everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 673, I am your host Tony C. Smith, hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy, yes we've got a proper show today, so I'm not going to waffle, I'm not going to waffle like I did last time, we're going Fantastic story oh, oh man yes and we have our very own Amy H Sturgis That's all coming in today's show I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it So main fiction Falling Sunward by Michael J. Whistler This story is an original to Starship Sofa. Michael J. Whistler is a commercial and documentary filmmaker by dear and science fiction author by night he's a sincere believer that good science fiction can help us save the world through his writing and podcast exploring tomorrow meaningful science fiction and life's big question whistler explores how we as people encounter and wrestle with meaning of life questions in the stories we love he is the author of two novels unidentified and sleepwalker with a third on his way he's also written and directed several award-winning science fiction short films whistler was born in brazil south america where he spent most of his childhood he now lives on the south shore of boston massachusetts with his wife and daughter and to learn more about mr whistler you can find him at mikewhistler.com and there's a link there to the site now this story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage and screen and the audio booth. She's been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She went to New York University and lives in Brooklyn, New York. You can find her at TatianaGray.com. And again, as a link there. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Falling Sunward by Michael J. Whistler
4: Narrated by Tatiana Gray The suicide burn fired right on schedule. But Kiva could swear it felt like the boosters hesitated. Her stomach went from floating in her throat to being thrust into her lower back. And boy, did that hurt. The tiny landing module shook violently. A moment later... Three rapid explosions made her heart stop, even as her brain reminded her body that the cushioning bags had just deployed as expected. Her eyes shot back and forth across the control panel. The landing sequence was essentially automated, and so far no alarms had gone off. Any second now, she would... She hit the Martian surface, the air rushing out of her lungs. Her vision blurred and narrowed into a tunnel for a split second, as her entire body ached. Kiva willed herself back to alertness. An alarm sounded. One of the landing cushions had burst. The landing module tilted to the right. As it did, another alarm sounded, alerting her to the loss of balance. She reached forward to deploy an emergency stabilizer booster on the falling side of the module, but when she pressed it, she got a misfire code. Had she been a skilled pilot... She might have been able to activate manual autopilot override and use the maneuvering boosters to right the module, but she was in the wrong seat for that. The pilot seat sat empty next to her, a fact that the permanent lump in her throat would not allow her to forget. The module lurched further, and in that split second, Kiva reached out and hit the landing cushion override command, instantly deflating the remaining cushions. The module dropped to the Martian rocks with a painful bang and rocked into an upright position. Well, relatively upright, at least. The instrument panel before her informed her she was leaning 6.59 degrees aft. Close enough for a solo landing. Close enough for my last landing, Kiva Yi thought, as she swallowed back that familiar lump. The hollow pain she'd grown accustomed to Overwhelmed any relief she felt at managing to land safely. She felt a wave of nausea, but knew it likely had nothing to do with the landing. Three more alarms sounded. She forced herself to go through the motions and check them off one by one. There was damage to a section of the heat shield, a potential breach to one of the empty fuel cells, and one communication antenna was no longer registering as connected. This shortlist would not have been acceptable on any other mission. She sighed and tapped the screen for each one and brought silence to the cabin. Now it was just her heart, thundering in her chest, and her breathing inside her helmet. She sat there, allowing herself a moment of merely existing, merely breathing, merely being, merely feeling this foreign gravity— the immense weight of her journey threatened to burst out of her gut in a whale she knew she wouldn't be able to rein back in. So she asked it to wait, just a little longer. She had a mission to complete first. Then she could finally let go. But not before then. She wondered if the weight she felt all over her body was really the gravity of Mars, or was it her soul falling even further away from her Kiva could have stayed right there. Part of her wished she could. Was there really any point in continuing this desperate mission? Immediately, she felt a wave of bitter guilt rise within her chest. How could she think such a thing? What was wrong with her? She shook off her self-pity, biting her lip forcefully as she looked up at the control panel before her. A glint of red light caused her to blink, and she realized that the sun was coming through one of the small triangular windows on the module. That's right, she thought. There's an entire planet out there. No point in sitting here in solitude. After punching in the command to send news home of her rough but successful landing, she initiated the atmosphere evacuation procedure and looked out the window at the slight bit of red horizon she could see. After a minute... The landing module computer informed her that the pressure inside matched the pressure on the surface of the red planet. Only her suit kept her alive now. Kiva Yi unbuckled herself from her landing module seat and climbed over to the exit hatch. Entering the unlock code, she watched as the hatch handle spun. The clank of the lock release was followed by the beep in her helmet that indicated the hatch was now ready to open. She pressed the button that now glowed green under the keypad next to the hatch. The hatch didn't budge. What now? She muttered. She pressed the green button again, but still the hatch refused to open. In her helmet, HUD, a new warning popped up. Module hatch jam. She leaned her head against the hatch and sighed. The landing had been too hard. This poor lunar-made module wasn't designed for such a rough drop. She used the touchpad on her suit's left arm to enter a search command, but threw her hands up after a moment. She glared at the hatch. It was unlocked, but stuck. Reaching out, she put a hand to it and pushed. It didn't budge. She pushed harder. Still nothing. She sighed again, fighting back irrational tears that demanded their moment. She hated crying in her helmet. Swallowing hard, she thought for a bit. Well, I didn't come all this way to sit here pissing in my suit and waiting for the end to come. She delivered a hard kick to the hatch. It moved slightly as her joints shocked her body with intense pain. She kicked it again, feeling the jolt of pain go up her leg and straight to her head. The hatch flew open at last bright sunlight flooding the interior of the module. Well, bright was a relative term, she reminded herself. It felt bright-ish to Kiva in the moment, but it was far from being as bright as it had been at the outset of their journey. She stepped out onto the Martian surface with a pang of longing for home rather than the excitement of setting foot on Mars for the first time. She had long dreamed as a young girl of visiting the red planet, and yet, now that she was finally here, she felt no awe or joy, only pain. This was a moment she should have been sharing with her partner. She took a few tentative steps, letting her body get used to the feeling of Martian gravity. It was a good bit more than the lunar gravity she was accustomed to. But seven months in space under nearly constant acceleration or deceleration had given her a chance to get prepared for a deeper gravity well. Looking back at the landing module, she could see that it leaned slightly. She wondered if she should try to close the hatch. She hadn't even run a proper shutdown sequence. It didn't really matter now, anyway. That poor module had done its last job. It was never going home. Thanks for the ride. She choked out. Activating her positioning system display in her helmet's HUD, she began the very last leg of a very long journey. Possibly humanity's last journey. Kiva stuffed the last of her socks into a Lunar Space Exploration Agency-issued bag. A knock on the door caught her off guard. Standing there was Tsu Fang, tall and lean in the fashion of many fourth-generation Lunarians. He looked at her with those still, calm eyes. "'I know,' she said preemptively. "'It's premature to be packing, "'and I'm just setting myself up for disappointment "'because you've been approved.'" Kiva stared at him, words still caught in her throat, her mouth open. The normally forgotten hum of the air circulation system seemed deafening now. "'You're going,' Sue said." They thought your mission proposal had high merit and is worthy of our investment. The final Callisto 4 rocket is being prepped. They're allocating the needed fuel now for the trip. Kiva let out a sigh of relief, fighting back a smile. They are only allocating the required fuel for a one-way trip. She cocked her head in puzzlement at this last remark. Yeah, that's all my mission brief called for. I argued for more. Why? Tsu shrugged. Cover our bases, account for unforeseen circumstances, he said, and give us the option to come home. What would be the point? Tsu shrugged again. Wait, why are you saying. W-? She started, but she could read the answer in his face. You talked your way into being my pilot? Corvin didn't pass psych evaluation, he said. The whole thing was about to get tossed into an endless loop of debating and reevaluating, and we don't have a single second to spare anymore. She looked down at the floor and then nodded slowly. I hope I'm not imposing, but you need a pilot. She looked up at him and breathed. Thank you. You really believe this is the landing site we should target? She frowned. You saw my presentation. You know as well as I do the Martians had splintered and nearly all the scientific development was taking place in the... Yes, he cut her off. I know, but do you believe it? Fighting back a sudden wave of anger, she stared into his eyes, trying to gain any insight into what he was getting at. Maybe he just needed to hear her say it. Maybe that was the last piece of the puzzle for him, the last push he needed to pack his own small bag and leave his home forever. Could she blame him? Yes, she said. This is it. He smiled. Okay. Kiva finally allowed that smile that had been fighting its way forward earlier to the surface. They were going to Mars. Her mission was approved. She was going to make a real difference. She was going to take action. I guess I better get ready, Sue said. He turned to leave and then looked back at her. Does your family know you applied? She nodded, her smile faltering. Gonna tell them the news? She swallowed back the icy claws that reached for her heart, as she pictured her mother, father, and brother. They didn't understand. They couldn't understand. Grief had already engulfed them, but she would not let it claim her, not when there was still something she could do. She shook her head. The sun might as well have been a glorified spotlight in the sky as far as Kiva was concerned. Sure, it had been bright getting out from the landing module on the Martian surface— but it was utterly bizarre to think that the tiny thing nearing the Martian horizon was really the same sun everyone back home dreaded. She wondered what it had been like to look out at the sun from the Earth's surface. Sue had been full of Earth knowledge. She listened to him talk about it to pass the time, but she struggled to retain much. Maybe it just felt pointless for her, even while it felt soothing for him. Up here... Near the northern pole of Mars, the sun never ventured high into the sky, which is why they had relied on nuclear power out here. Kiva's theory hinged on two factors—radiation and power consumption. Terraforming the red planet had not been completed before the abandonment. She wondered what it had been like when those on Earth had been capable of looking into the sky with wonder and hope for their future. But pendulums swing both ways, one of her history professors had once explained. Economies, cultures, politics, religious movements, these and more, formed intricate networks for societies that morphed. She couldn't imagine what that must have been like since her home city on the moon, Mondstadt, had comprised only a million people all crammed into its ever-deeper underground dwellings. And Mondstadt— had been only one city out of five. Is, Kiva corrected her thinking, they're not gone yet. After the abandonment, the cities on the moon had formed a more cohesive alliance out of necessity, but they never became a formal country or state. And yet, they had far too much in common and too much at stake to be strangers. Life on the moon had a way of doing that. Maybe it was the short horizon. She trekked on, wondering if those earthling bastards had ever really appreciated what it must have been like to walk freely on the surface of their planet without an EVA suit or the constant concern over oxygen and radiation levels. But pendulums swing both ways. And for the adventurous, the daring, the hopeful, who ventured out to the moon and beyond, their constant need for help eventually became a burden for Earth. Too busy trying to not tumble headfirst into an economic and ecological abyss, Earth had nothing left to offer its colonies in the sky. (laughs) It had to be the first time any colonies were given independence against their own wishes. Mother Earth simply could no longer care for her needy space children. Or so they had said. All of this had happened long before Kiva was born. It was hard to contemplate Earth in any other way than the numb bitterness that pervaded her world. She was one of Earth's abandoned children, after all. The only reality she'd ever known was one of self-reliance and survival by determined Lunarians. The only universe she'd ever experienced was one without Earth in the picture. Literally. She reached the edge of Shoming Shi, just as the faint sunset shone over the Martian horizon. Lights glowed from within the semi-opaque dome covering the top layer of the underground citadel. Like the moon, Mars offered no protection against the bombardment of radiation from the sun. Dreams of terraforming had remained just that and without an active inner core like Earth, there was no magnetic field to do its part against solar radiation. With no atmosphere and no magnetic field, dirt became the only real radiation shield. Was that why Mars had gone silent? What had gone on here? The nuclear reactor and autonomous maintenance systems kept this outpost running long beyond the last communications dropped off. After the abandonment, When Earth turned her back on her children and the stars, Mars had hunkered down and moved on. Or so the stories went. They refused all communication with Earth or the moon. Kiva reached an airlock. Now to test a key part of her mission proposal. Would the Universal Airlock Distress Code allow her entry still? Accessing her internal computer via the in-helmet HUD She brought up the distress signal command. This was it. She held her breath and activated the distress signal. The signal invisibly pulsed out of her suit. She watched the red airlock access light, waiting the painfully long seconds. Shit it's not working. Swallowing back panic, she started the calculation in her head for how much air she had and how long it was going to take to cut through the airlock with the plasma torch— when the light turned green. Yes! She yelled, causing her ears to ring in her helmet. The door swung open and she stared into the airlock and laughed. Shaking herself out of the sudden reverie, she stepped inside. Closing the hatch, she entered the command for pressurization and entry into the citadel. Staring at the metal door that opened into Shoming-shi, Kiva waited to discover if her journey, humanity's journey, was at an end or a new beginning. She'd only been six when it happened. The isolated Earth, inhabited by people who'd turn their backs on the sky, content to remain forever at the bottom of their gravity well, neglected to see their death rushing casually toward them from billions of kilometers away. It had taken everyone by surprise. Thanks to the abandonment by Earth, the colonies were too busy working on their own imminent survival to invest the tools and time to spy on the surrounding galaxy for potential threats. Some on the moon suspected Mars had seen it coming and embittered by the neglect of their mother world raised no alarm. Kiva had a hard time believing that. She wondered what it had been like on Earth when they worked it out. What had people done? Lunarians had the advantage of time. It was not so with those on Earth. They'd had mere months and no infrastructure to mount a response. The scale of the comet had erased any hope of a different outcome. She had studied it all in school. She was supposed to know the mass and dimensions of the comet, but she found she always forgot— It was pushed out of her mind by the images of cities on fire, mass graves for the suicides, the prayer vigils, the blinding blast. It didn't matter. Only one simple fact mattered at all. The Earth was gone. Scattered into chunks that would someday form a new and hardly noticeable asteroid belt where Earth's orbit had been. The moon was spared, Coming around the Earth in the sun's direction at the time of the impact, the angle of the comet's impact pushed the debris away from the moon. But with Earth's magnificent gravity well erased from the fabric of the universe, the moon was left to be influenced by a much more distant, though greater, force. As Kiva roamed the empty halls of Shoming-shi, she wondered if what they said on Luna was true after all. She'd refused to believe it at this time. But as her heart sank at the sight of the empty citadel, she couldn't help but wonder if it was all true after all. Were the only remaining members of the human race falling sunward with no escape and no future? But she was here now. Three days into her stay in the empty Martian city, She concluded two things. The place was genuinely empty, and she was beyond sick of replenishing her air supply from local EVA suits and resupply outlets. It was time to find a more homey place where she could stay and climb out of that damned suit, which was getting increasingly tighter. She was also starving and desperate to detach from the waste removal system in the suit before she got a full blown UTI. It would be too much to hope for a shower, but she needed something to eat other than the protein sludge she could suck from a straw in her helmet. But at least Kiva had an idea. She tried to reassure herself that this was a good idea and not just the desperate flailing of a doomed woman with no other viable options. But an idea is an idea, right? She found herself thinking. What else are we going to do at this point? I try this or I go back to my crashed landing module and try to radio home and tell them the bad news. Could she even break the bad news to them? Would it be better to keep them holding out hope for as long as possible? Was she doing the same now? Or was there viability to this last-ditch effort she wanted to make? Deep in the bowels of the city was a secured section Kiva had not ventured into yet. Its heavy door made her figure... She'd be working for some time with the plasma torch to get through. It had to be access to the city's nuclear reactor or to some other secured scientific installation. The map she could find of the city was out of date and the nuclear reactor had been a closely held secret. Obviously, it was underground somewhere, but the Martians didn't want that information shared with just anyone, especially given the fact that they seemed to figure that if anyone was about to show up from Earth or the moon, it might be for a hostile takeover and being able to hold their power sullies hostage would be a real advantage to attackers. So maybe the reactor was down that direction. Or maybe there was something else. Either way, they wanted it protected, given how deep it was, and how thick that door seemed. The Geiger counter in her suit showed no elevated radiation in the area, so she figured she'd try it once she replenished the power for her suit's electrical systems. Maybe there were still people huddled away deeper under this city with its active power supply. She fought off dread and despair, trying to remain hopeful that there was still enough of a contingency of Martian society to mount a rescue mission. Her people were desperately relying on her. It was her job as the messenger to remain hopeful and leave no rock unturned. That other messengers of other areas of Mars had failed, could not enter her mind. Such thoughts threatened to drag her down below a sea of despair from which she would never be able to surface. She was sure they had looked the wrong places. She had to be. Of course, if what lay beyond that door was more nothing, she was really going to be out of options. But she couldn't let herself think of that. She swallowed back the rising despair and steeled herself for one more effort, one more rock to turn over. After all, the place was curious. Bright lights illuminated the large door. On it were no words, only a large, monochromatic drawing of a tree. She figured she'd have to use her plasma torch to cut through the door— Her careful study of old records on her trip to Mars gave her some ideas of the scientific facility she might find inside, but those records were decades old, predating the Martian silence. Huh, there could be anything behind this door. Or nothing at all. What had Sue said on the trip out? Not much of a gamble when there's nothing left to lose. She tried to push the thought of him from her mind as she worked. But the smell of his hair returned to her nose like a ghost drifting through a silent room, the unseen ripples of love and grief tracing out from the source. How he'd touched her, how he'd held her, how he'd lied to her, or failed to tell her the truth behind his desire to volunteer for the mission. Not much of a gamble indeed, she muttered as she approached the door, the words hollow and frightening in her helmet. When had she spoken last? She stared at the tree on the door. It was a silhouette, almost a large icon, really. But why a tree? It had no access panel she could see, so she reached for her plasma torch as she stepped up to it. The door slid open. She jumped back in surprise. Beyond it, lay darkness. And in that darkness, she was certain she would either find hope or desolation. Returning her plasma torch to its spot on her tool belt, she stared into the darkness. Why would the door just open? Her body moved forward on its own. Her mind, her soul, her ability to hope all remained behind, numb beyond rescue now. But her body had a mission to accomplish. The floodlights attached to her helmet automatically kicked on as she crossed into darkness. Surrounding her were tall shelves. She stepped between them and looked about. Her heart thundered as she realized that small, glowing displays at regular intervals showed that the glass sealed shelves were operating. Slowly, lights began to glow from above. It was at this point that Kiva was able to finally grasp how high the ceiling in this room was. She craned her neck back and gazed up at the glowing lights emitting from the ceiling some thirty meters above her. The shelves seemed to go nearly as high. Looking back down at the rows, she realized what she was seeing. These were long term, deep storage units and they were still functioning. Walking through the shelves, deeper into the massive warehouse, which is what she took it for since she saw no walls to her left or right after entering, she traveled a long way. Here and there, she caught glimpses of containers behind the glass. There were seeds and partially grown plants. So one rumor was true. Mars had maintained a cryogenic genetic storage system of some sort. Her feet moved faster. Her heart pounded hard now, aching inside her chest. Finally, she reached the end of the row of shelves. She skidded to a stop, nearly losing her balance. There was a body on the floor. It lay on the pristine white floor next to the massive working control console. She stepped closer to the preserved body. With no real atmosphere in the warehouse, there was no decomposition, just a lifeless, frozen, terrifyingly skinny form of a man. His light brown skin stretched tight over his cheekbones. His lifeless blue lips were slightly parted. His eyes stared out in frozen awe. He seemed forever petrified in a moment of transcendence, as if gazing out lovingly at a future for which, him, would never arrive. Kiva stooped and took in the sight of him, feeling drawn to this spectacle of death, sensing a kinship in mortality she'd struggled to know in living. She recalled feeling this way as she was forced to prepare Tsu's body to be jettisoned into the cosmos, once the cancer took over too many of his organs. All those missions to the lunar surface, in efforts to maintain solar arrays— launch missions to Mars, fixed communication antennae, damaged by increasingly closer solar flares. They added up to radiation overload for Tsu's body. Standing, she felt the child inside of her, struggling against its increasingly cramped quarters. The unborn child was already living in the plight of every Lunarian. Such a vast universe— and yet so inhospitable to the fragile sacks of fluid and bone with overgrown brains. Maybe it was just the way of the universe. All life has an expiration date. Humanity was reaching their own at last. Blinking back tears, she pulled her eyes away from the dead man and at last allowed herself to gaze properly at the large control wall before her. The semicircular control station had a desk-level control panel and a single massive curved screen that displayed the status of every sector. Cryogenically preserved were a host of seeds, plants, animal embryos, and—she took in a sharp breath—human embryos. There were human embryos. Rushing forward to the control panel, she stared at the window displaying the human embryo numbers. 7,877 viable embryos, according to the display. Next to that was an entire database of thousands of human eggs and sperm and other genetic material. She glanced down at the simple control panel. It was deceptively simple. It was a single-touch surface. As she drew near to it, it glowed with life then resolved into a single blue circle that waited directly in front of her. As if drawn instinctively to it, she reached out and touched it. The screen before her cleared, and video footage of Earth appeared before her, surrounding her peripheral vision on the large, arched screen. Oceans, lush green forests, cities, villages, rockets launching into space— Without words, the history of humanity's venturing out from its home world played before her. At last, the comet struck. The footage now showed life on Mars. Martian cities rose quickly in time-lapse. Kiva recognized the scientific outposts being built in the footage to attempt the terraforming on Mars, but the structures weren't complete. The footage cut to life inside the cities. People with sunken eyes coughed. Hospital beds filled. Microscopic footage of what Kiva could only assume was a virus danced before her. Next, shots of empty city walkways and paths. Kiva tasted the salt of her own tears, only then realizing she was crying. Something had gone horribly wrong on Mars. Something had decimated the population. A map of Mars displayed red Xs one by one over each Martian city and outpost until, at last, there were none left. The map was marked only with icons. No words. No date, either. There was no way of knowing for sure when this had all transpired. Kiva looked all around the screen, trying to find any inscription, anything to indicate the time or cause of the Martian plague. Nothing. All the information was being conveyed to her by visuals alone, no language. The screen now displayed footage of the stacks of cryogenic shelves. It showed her where other such locations could be found. It showed her labs that could be used. It showed her what could be done still to revive the human race. It ended with a shot of a newborn child being held by a woman before the screen faded. She stood frozen in place, waiting for anything. What she saw next confused her. It was the same footage, starting over with shots of Earth. But the colors were all wrong. Like some vibrant negative image tinged with reds and purples. Had the screen broken? How could that be? Her stomach lurched with a horrible realization. These visuals were not for her benefit. They were now playing in a different light spectrum than the human eye was equipped to see properly. That's why there was no language in the video. Tell them the story without words, with no language and grammar. Let them see what they needed to know. She looked back to the last keeper of this vault of life and wondered if he'd ever imagined another human being would be the one to stumble upon this place. It didn't seem like it had been their plan— Whatever their plan had been, that was not the real question for Kiva now. What am I going to do with this? She turned and looked at all the rows of tall shelves going off in every direction. Could she really revive humanity in this place? What of the virus? Was it gone now? That its host was gone as well? Was it inadvertently preserved on one of those shelves? And even if she dared bring embryos to life, could she raise them? Could her children succeed where others had failed? Was she just cursing them to a cruel existence of toil, longing, and pain? She looked back at the screen, which was cycling through the footage again, in a new wavelength that, to her eyes, seemed mostly black and white. (laughs) Was not toil and pain and longing the human story, after all? Who was she not to act if she could? But could she? Kiva took a seat on the floor, next to the last keeper of humanity's future. She took a deep breath, feeling the tightness of the suit against her own child growing inside her. She was already a keeper of humanity's future in her own right. This was not the task that had brought her to Mars, and it crushed her. She wept with abandon, shaking herself to the floor, mourning with acute certainty for every doomed Lunarian she had come to save. How long she lay on the floor she did not know, but eventually her air supply alert roused her. She would need to resupply soon or find the controls to reintroduce atmosphere to this place, so she could climb out of her suit at least. When she painfully rose to her feet, she found that the screen now displayed the same databases of all the preserved genetic materials. But clear icons now were displayed above each window. They bore the same monochromatic and precise style to the tree on the door that led her into the warehouse. Could she really do this? She felt the child move within her, almost as if delivering a nudge to remind her she was not quite so alone after all. She took a deep breath and sighed. She would not do it alone. She would likely see only the first tentative steps of this new long-term mission taken. But she could be a keeper of humanity's future. This was not how she intended to ensure humanity's survival when she left her home, and that thought would forever haunt her every breath. But she could teach the next keeper... Who could teach the next until humanity could begin its cautious rebirth and resume its endless struggle? She placed her hand over her belly, sighed a soul-crushed, hope-filled prayer to anyone who might still care for her race of beautifully flawed beings, and accepted what she knew for certain now to be her final mission.
3: There you go, Mike. Mike, lad. Oh, listen when everyone pop over to Mike's site, and he's got a podcast as well. So please do do subscribe with that, Mike. What a what a what a story! Oh, thank you indeed. And Tatiana, it's lovely. A big hug from me. Big hug. So, without further ado. <laughs>
1: It's our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ims Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I would like to talk about a topic that is, in a sense, ripped from the headlines, or at least inspired by the headlines. What headlines are those, you may ask, Well, I want to read you just the beginning of a news article from October 28th, 2021. Uh, This was posted by the public relations at the website of the San Diego Zoo in California. And the headline is, San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance Conservation Scientists Report First Confirmed Hatchings of Two California Condor Chicks, From unfertilized eggs. Discovery of parthenogenesis or asexual reproduction is a first for the species and by historic confirmation through molecular genetic testing. Okay, that was a mouthful. Let me just read you the opening paragraphs here to give you an idea of this topic, this significant find. From San Diego. Conservation scientists at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance reported an extraordinary discovery this week in the Journal of Heredity, the official journal of the American Genetic Association, that could have rippling effects for wildlife genetics and conservation science. During a routine analysis of biological samples from two California condors in the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance's managed breeding program, scientists confirmed that each condor chick was genetically related to the respective female condor, or dam, that laid the egg from which it hatched. However, in a surprising twist, they found that neither bird was genetically related to a male, meaning... Both chicks were biologically fatherless, and accounted for the first two instances of asexual reproduction, or parthenogenesis, to be confirmed in the California condor species. Additionally, the two dams were continuously housed with fertile male partners, so this parthenogenesis discovery is not only the first to be documented in condors, but it is also the first discovered through the use of molecular genetic testing— and the first in any avian species where the female bird had access to a mate. This is a truly amazing discovery, said Oliver Ryder, Ph.D., Kleberg Endowed Director of Conservation Genetics at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, who is co-author of the study. We were not exactly looking for evidence of parthenogenesis. It just hit us in the face. We only confirmed it because of the normal genetic studies we do to prove parentage. Our results showed that both eggs possessed the expected male ZZ sex chromosomes, but all markers were only inherited from their dams, verifying our findings, end quote. Okay, so what is this about? This is about parthenogenesis, asexual reproduction, in which an embryo that's not fertilized by sperm continues to develop and And it only contains the genetic materials of the mother. Okay, this is very exciting for conservation. This is very exciting for genetics. This is exciting, of course, for the California condor. But I immediately thought of how science fiction has talked about parthenogenesis in, yes, drumroll, the human species. So my brain immediately went back to 1915, To Her Land by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, a novel I really think is amazing and that I have taught in class. That is the first thing that I thought of when I saw this news article. Charlotte Perkins Gilman was an American humanist, novelist. She wrote short stories, she wrote poetry, she wrote nonfiction, and she also lectured for social reform. And Her Land, which was published originally, serialized January through December in 1915, is a novel about an isolated society that had existed for 2,000 years with only women, sort of isolated in the mountains, no way to get in, no way to get out. And so this society of women became, by necessity, by adaptation, evolution, if you will, parthenogenetic. The women reproduced asexually. This novel is so smart and it accomplishes so much It's told from the perspective of a sociology student, Van Dyke or Van Jennings. And he and two of his friends form a party, an expedition, to go see if the rumors are true that in this uncharted land, there is, in fact, a society consisting only of women. They can't believe it's true, because how would that community reproduce over the years, right? But they want to see if it is, they want to study it and learn from it, So they speculate about what it might be like. They each guess, and they guess differently, all three of them, based on their own stereotypes about women. So you can see how much this is a novel about gender and how gender is constructed. Remember, this is 1915, in which Charlotte Perkins Gilman was writing this. And you can see how very differently each of these three men assume a woman's society would develop. And once they discover this place, which is a utopia, frankly, they react in very different ways. One who just thinks women should be protected and served and sort of puts women up on a pedestal. He he essentially reveres the society, idolizes it, and prefers it to his own. Then the one who assumed that women were things to be conquered and won, the male chauvinist of the group, he doesn't fare very well at all. In fact, he ultimately gets expelled from the community because he turns rapist. But our main character, the sociology student, falls somewhere in the middle and is fascinated by what he sees in the society. And the women are remarkable characters, and they engage in conversation and analysis about why their society has developed the way it is and what the expectations of uh, the men were and what differences there are between this women-led society and the societies outside. Education is the highest art in Herland and is one of the reasons this community has thrived the way it has. There is a really interesting take here on individualism and community, We often see individual versus the community set up as a kind of classic trope, the conflict. But there isn't the conflict you might imagine in Herland. It's a very individualistic culture to the point that the women there use only first names because having a last name would be the mother claiming some kind of ownership over the daughter, and that is just not done. But there's also a very strong connection to community and an appreciation that consensus must run the government, must run the society, that everything everyone does affects everyone else. And so decisions have to be made with appreciation of the impact and consequences of individuals' actions. But there is not that sense of conflict between the individual and the community, quite the opposite. And of course, gender is front and center here. Uh, What is constructed, what is natural, if anything, and what we could see naturally evolve from a society without the imposition of gender expectations from one gender upon another. It's also fascinating to see how our point of view character, Van, rethinks and recontextualizes his own society after encountering her land. At any rate, a fantastic novel. Really a classic for a reason. Highly recommended. Okay, so my brain immediately went from the California condor (laughs) to Charlotte Birkins Gilman, as it would, right? But I also thought it'd be interesting to mention a few other science fiction works that deal with Parthenogenesis. So let me just name a few. This is not a comprehensive list. I'm not pretending that it is. But I thought it might be interesting to note a few highlights in the history of Parthenogenesis in science fiction. So I'm going to start there with Her Land. But later, there are others. I want to pay particular attention to a few. One I would note is A Door into Ocean by Joan Slunczewski. From 1986. Dr. Zeus, or Dr. S, as some of her students call her, is an American microbiologist at Kenyon College, where she has a very cool website which includes, among other things, health advice for students. Her health advice for students includes four key tenets sleep eight hours every night, avoid alcohol, avoid fraternities and sororities, and prepare for the zombie apocalypse. She's also a science fiction writer, and she has focused a lot of her work on space travel and biology. She has twice won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel, and one of those wins was for A Door into Ocean. By the way, she also originated the idea of the mitochondrial singularity. That's the idea that the technological singularity, which a lot of science fiction folks know about, uh, is happening gradually, that humans are becoming, in a sense, the mitochondria of our own machines. And she has written books that explore this, novels that explore this through science fiction, like Brain Plague and The Highest Frontier. A door into ocean is my focus. Though here its themes include ecofeminism, biology, obviously, because it is a book about a female-centric society that reproduces through parthenogenesis, and also nonviolent revolution. So this is a key hard science fiction text as well as a key. Science fiction text from the perspective of gender and feminism. Another work I want to mention is Ammonite by Nicola Griffith from 1992. She is a multiple award winner Nebula Award, World Fantasy Award, multiple Lambda Literary Awards. She's won the James Tiptree Jr. Award, which is now the Otherwise Award. She's a UK and US dual citizen, and she's also the founder of Hashtag Cripplet, an online community for writers with disabilities, and she co-hosts a regular chat on Twitter on that topic. Ammonite was her first work. It won multiple awards. The Lambda Literary Award for LGBT themed science fiction, uh, the Otherwise Award, again, that was uh, formerly the James Tiptree Jr. Award, Also, in 2008, the Italian translation of Ammonite won the Primo Italia Award, which is the Italian prize for works in science fiction and fantasy. Ammonite is told from the point of view of a woman anthropologist who goes to a colony that had previously, centuries earlier, been shattered by a virus that took out all of the men and changed the surviving women. And so now, after a very long time, this anthropologist is coming to interact with this remnant, with the descendants of this colony, and discovers when she gets there that uh, she too is changing. Griffith engages with the question of whether a society run by women would be superior to what we have seen. And she doesn't rely on easy answers here. She really gets in and grapples with this question of sexuality, of humanity, of what's real and what isn't, and what gender means or might mean in terms of the way a society is constructed, how a society runs, how a society survives. One other work I want to mention is Glory Season by David Brin from 1994. Brin is a U.S. scientist and science fiction author. He's won the Hugo Award, the Locus Award, the Campbell Award, the Nebula Award, and in fact, Glory Season was nominated for both the Hugo and Locus Awards in 1994. And this work has been debated, actually, quite a bit. The premise is that a genetic engineer has created a new strain of human being, And that new strain can produce sexually, but women can also choose to reproduce through parthenogenesis. And the resulting society is largely female, and one of the issues of contention, some people see this as a feminist utopia other people say no that's not a utopia that's a dystopia some people view it as a feminist work some people view it as a post-feminist critique of feminism you kind of see my point here a lot of different interpretations of this work but it is undeniably important and I wanted to make sure to add that to the list as I said, these are not the only works that deal with parthenogenesis, and in fact, as an ending note, I'm going to share a couple of short descriptions of a couple of other novels. On December twelfth, two 2008, Gizmodo ran an essay by Lauren Davis as a kind of Christmassy-themed, <laughs> if you will, look at what davis called science fiction's explanations for virgin birth and it was a wee bit tongue-in-cheek and quite clever and a couple of novels mentioned there i wanted to mention using lauren davis's descriptions the first is virgin planet by paul anderson that was 1959 And Davis explains it this way. After a spaceship full of female explorers crash on an uncharted planet, the survivors set up a new society and develop a way to reproduce through Parthenogenesis. Generations later, descendants of the female colonists have never seen a man, and the powerful doctors hold the secrets to Parthenogenesis. But when a lone man lands on the planet, many of the women are eager to try an alternative method of reproduction. End quote. So there you go. And one more worth mentioning. Also from the same article, Sex and the High Command by John Boyd from 1970, and Davis describes it this way. A drug called Vitalerp not only allows parthenogenesis, but gives women an orgasm as well, causing some women to view men as obsolete. A battle of the sexes breaks out as a woman's crusade emerges to wipe out men and eliminate males from the future gene pool end quote. And so the big takeaway here is that, first of all, California condor, way to adapt. And secondly, that science fiction has been contemplating in one form or another Parthenogenesis for some time. I haven't given you a comprehensive list here due to time constraints, but I will give you a quick Recap of the works I have mentioned Herland, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, 1915. Virgin Planet by Paul Anderson, 1959. Sex and the High Command by John Boyd, 1970. A Door into Ocean by Joan Slanczewski, 1986. Ammonite by Nicola Griffith, from 1992. And Glory Season by David Brin, from 1994. So I hope you found that fun or to be of interest and I thank you for your time. I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we get together again to take another look back at genre history. Thank you.
3: Oh Amy, 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 big, big hug glass, big hug. just as big as Tatiana's there, thank you so much Amy, and as you know, I've uh, <laughs> I've hit you up for a little bit of work there, a little bit of help out with me, me spelling, <laughs> so yes, Amy's you rock, thank you so much. So that is Starship Sovaz show, put to bed, I hope you've enjoyed it. Listen, I know I'm going to harp on, but not as much today. But do think about supporting the show. You know what I mean? We want to kind of keep on going. We've been going for so long now. It would be immense if you could join Patreon or one-off or come over to PayPal. Monthly donations there, marvelous. Until next time, just let us say good night from me. Thank you for listening.
2: Yeah, much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm mooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. I want to talk to you.